Welcome to Dear Sarah, a Sarah J. Mass podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Adams, self-proclaimed Sarah J. Mass theorist and analyst. This episode and all episodes may contain spoilers for all the Sarah J. Mass universe. If you haven't read all the books, proceed with caution. I will try to give warnings before I mention universe connections or spoilers, but shit happens. Dear Sarah, why is it so important that we open up with Feyre in the woods in the winter? I can't believe that this is the first episode where I get to talk about A Court of Thorns and Roses with you. If you're watching the video, you're going to see me flipping through my book and checking out my notes. If you're listening, you won't get the pleasure of any of that. Yeah, today we're going to be diving into chapters 1 through 5 of Akatar. Akatar is just a shortened version of saying A Court of Thorns and Roses, and I'm going to be using that acronym frequently, just so you guys know if you've never heard it before. There's a lot to cover in the first 46 pages of this book. I'm using the original paperback. All of my page numbers are going to be for the original paperback and they may differ from your version. I will always try to let you guys know which chapter that we're in so you can follow along that way. Just go ahead and get your highlighters and your tabs ready because we're jumping right in. In every episode, I am going to give you guys like a gist of what's happened like in those chapters because this isn't a summarization podcast. There are tons of those out there. This one, we're just kind of focusing on like breadcrumbs and foreshadowing. I don't want to spend a lot of time on summarizing. To give you a gist of the first five chapters, when we open up, Favorite is in the woods and she kills a doe in the wolf for her family and she suspects that the wolf may be a fairy, but it probably isn't. Then we learn about Feyre's sisters and her father and their family dynamics. We get to see what Feyre's village looks like, and we learn that fairies may be creeping across the wall and into human lands more than ever before. Feyre sells her hides to a mercenary who also tells her to be careful about these animals and wolves and creatures that are crossing the wall. This is when we enter Scene Right, Big Bad's scary fairy, <laughs> who comes to seek vengeance because the wolf was actually a fairy and now Feyre owes her life to the fairy lands across the wall in Perinthian. So that's a gist, but we're gonna just break down what Sarah left for us in this book. Before we even open the book, something that I want to remind you guys is that Akatar, Akamath, and Akawar are all first-person POV. And that POV is Feyre. So we need to keep this in mind because we only get to see this world and the characters through her eyes. So everything that we get to know is biased. We only get to see one side of everything. I will talk about this more in depth when I do a chapter on Feyre and her family. But I just wanted to let you guys know that that's kind of the lens that we are viewing this book from and the other two books as well. This first chapter is so important. We get so much information about Feyre and the world that she lives in. The first thing that I think is so interesting is that we get Feyre as a nameless female hunter. We don't even get to know our protagonist's name until chapter two and I think that builds a lot of suspense for the reader. Like we get we're questioning like who is this character? Like why is she hunting? Like we don't know who she is yet. First off we get to know really quickly quickly that she's good at hunting and she's good at tracking and we know this with the language that Sarah gives us so I'm going to read these for you. So if you're following along you can go ahead and open up your book. The forest had become a labyrinth of snow and ice. I'd been monitoring the parameters of the thicket for an hour and my vantage point in the crook of a tree branch has turned useless. The gusting wind blew thick flurries 
to sweep away my tracks, but buried along with them any signs of potential quarry. Hunger had brought me farther from home than I usually risk, but winter was the hard time. The animals had pulled in, going deeper into the woods than I could follow, leaving me to pick off stragglers one by one, praying they'd last until spring. They hadn't. We get this opening scene where we're seeing this nameless female hunter, and she's monitoring the woods for prey for things to hunt. And I know personally, if I was in the same situation, I would not have been able to make the same kind of observations here that Feyre does. A normal person wouldn't be able to know that the animals are pulling deeper into the woods. That means that there's less food for them, too. Feyre knows this. It just proves how much of a skill she has and what an asset she is to her family in these opening chapters. She's setting it up to show us that she is trained, even if it's self-trained, for these skills, and it lets her and her family survive. It's showing us that Feyre is resourceful and patient, that she can stay in this tree branch, like this bough of a tree, for hours, in the perfect spot, waiting for this game to pass by. There's other moments in this first chapter where we see Feyre's skills being mentioned. On page two, Feyre thinks to herself, the icy snow crunched under my fraying boots, and I ground my teeth. Low visibility, unnecessary noise, I was well on my way to yet another fruitless hunt. Feyre knows what to do to hunt, but she also knows when the hunt isn't going to go in her favor. She knows factors that are going to not produce animals for her to hunt and capture and bring home. We see more of this hunting Feyre on page three. I eased into a more comfortable position and calmed my breathing, straining to listen to the forest over the wind. She knows that she's going to be here for a while. She's settling down, calming her breath so she can be calm so she can hear what's going on around her and not the noise that she's making. And she's listening for noises in the woods that's not normal. So not the trees blowing, not the wind like rustling through the trees, but what an animal would sound like in the forest. So she's able to recognize and pick that up. We have a little bit more of this hunting Vera on the bottom of page five, continuing into page six. So this is when Feyre is getting ready to shoot her bow and arrow. Um, so this goes hand in hand with Feyre being a huntress. Now I drew it, keeping my movements minimal, efficient, anything to avoid that monstrous wolf looking in my direction. The arrow was long and heavy enough to inflict damage, possibly kill him, if I aimed right. My chest became so tight it ached, and in that moment I realized my life boiled down to one question. Was the wolf alone? I gripped my bow and drew the string farther back. I was a decent shot, but I never faced a wolf. I thought it made me lucky even blessed, but now I didn't know where to hit or how fast they moved. I couldn't afford to miss, not when I only had one ash arrow. Go back to the point that I made in the beginning of the podcast that Feyre, we're getting everything through Feyre's point of view. Clearly we are seeing that she knows how to handle a bow and an arrow, but she's still doubting her abilities. And we see that not just with hunting, but with her other skills that she possesses and we see throughout this book and the other books. She is constantly 
doubting herself and her capabilities even when she's completely able and capable of doing the tasks that are set before her. In all of these examples, we see just how skilled of a hunter Feyre actually is. She's not able to just take in her surroundings and figure out the best place to hunt. She knows the animal patterns and knows how to accurately shoot a bow and arrow and take down not one, but two animals back to back. We also see her in action as she skins a wolf. Not a skill that I know, that's for sure. <laughs> I want to talk about another factor or a layer of Feyre that we get to see in this opening chapter, and it's her desperation. We see that Feyre and her family's survival relies on what food Feyre can bring back to the cottage. We see this desperation on page two, continuing on to page three. I had risked much in coming so far into the forest, but we'd finished our last loaf of bread yesterday and the remainder of our dried meat the day before. This is on page three. We wouldn't last another week without food, and too many families had already started begging for me to hope for handouts from the wealthier townsfolk. Just these two quotes alone, we can see what dire need Feyre and her family is in. They are down to their last loaves of bread, their last bits of food, and other families are telling Feyre to hope for handouts from other families. So like that's the situation that they're in. Personally, I know that I have never been in a situation where I was questioning how I would get food for the next day, but I can imagine that this is not a great place to be in mentally. Um, we need to understand the amount of pressure that this is putting on Feyre's shoulders and why she may be making the decisions that she's making in these opening chapters. Um, I'm going to be using a little bit of my psychology background and knowledge briefly to talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You may have remembered seeing a colorful pyramid in your psychology textbooks in school. That's the thing that I'm referring to. I will be putting a link to the website that has Maslow's hierarchy of needs if you guys want to take a look at it. But basically, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a motivational theory in psychology comprising of a five-tiered model of human needs. It's often depicted as hierarchical levels um, within a pyramid. So you need to fulfill the bottom section before you can move up to the next one. Kind of think of the food pyramid, but a little bit of a different structure. So from the bottom of the hierarchy upwards, the needs are physiological, safety, love and belonging, esteem, and then self-actualization. So you can't become your best self until you fulfilled all of the things below it. Our poor Pharaoh in this opening couple chapters or a lot of the book is at the bottom. She's in the psychological needs section of this pyramid. These needs include breathable air, drinking water, food, shelter, clothing, and reproduction. So we are going to assume for the sake of assuming that Feyre has breathable air and clean drinking water. We know that she has shelter. She has the cottage, which she lives with her father and her sisters. At this point, she is in the woods hunting for food. So she is actively searching and hunting for food to fulfill that need. Uh, before she even kills the doe that she sees in the, in the, clear, in the forest, She's thinking about the food that she can get from it and the clothing that it could provide for her sisters. This passage is on page four. I could dry half the meat and we could immediately eat the rest. Stews, pies. Her skin could be sold or perhaps turned into clothing for one of us. I needed new boots, but Elaine needed a new cloak. And Nesta was prone to crave anything someone else possessed. So this is just clearly proving my point that Feyre is in this bottom tier of the hierarchy. And the last part of this tier is the psychological of the psychological needs is reproduction. So this isn't something that like even means like reproduction. Like this is when Isaac Hale comes in. We learn about Isaac Hale on page three. So like super early in the book, I couldn't remember the last time I'd done it. 
bothered to notice anything lovely or interesting. Stolen hours in a decrepit barn with Isaac Hale didn't count. Those times were hungry and empty and sometimes cruel but never lovely. With this description of Feyre's relationship with Isaac, she paints us a picture that is very primal. These hours with Isaac are stolen. They're in a barn and they're hungry and cruel. Like, that is not what you would normally think about when you're thinking about like a relationship between two people. So this is a very primal need that she's fulfilling. So this is the last piece of that hierarchy the psychological needs that she is meeting by meeting with Isaac in the barn. We will talk more about Maslow's hierarchy of needs as Feyre progresses throughout Akatar and the series in general, but right now she's literally at the lowest point that a human can be. Still in chapter 1, I want to bring your attention to some gentle foreshadowing and breadcrumb moments. On page 2, we get our first little breadcrumb. Still, I would rather have spent another night with a hungry belly than found myself satisfying the appetite of a wolf or a fairy. This breadcrumb is actually a little bit silly because while Feyre doesn't find herself in the belly of a fairy or a wolf or eaten by anything in general, exactly two pages later she runs into a wolf who is a fairy and we find that out later. We also get several little breadcrumbs scattered throughout about the true identity of this wolf. They start on the bottom of page four, but if he was no ordinary animal, if he was of Prithian origin, if he was somehow a fairy, then being eaten was the least of my concerns. If he was a fairy, I should be already running. And then another one is, but despite his size, he looked like a wolf, moved like a wolf. Again, this is kind of also tying back into Feyre's hunting skills. She has proved to us that she knows the way that animals typically move and their normal patterns. So with her skill set, she's come to the conclusion that it is more likely that this animal, even though it is abnormally large, is a wolf because it's acting like a wolf. She's almost convincing herself that there's no reason for it to be a fairy, that the only logical option is that it's just a large wolf. But we can see that she fully can't convince herself so to be 100% safe in the small chance that it's not just a wolf, she uses her ash arrow instead of a regular one. Now a breadcrumb to keep an eye on for way later in the book um, is on page 6. And if it was indeed a fairy's heart pounding under that fur, then good riddance. Good riddance after all their kind has done to us. I wouldn't risk this one later creeping into our village to slaughter and maim and torment. Let him die here and now. I'd be glad to end him. If you read Akatar before, you know why this sentence is important. But if you're reading and tabbing along with me, just place your foreshadowing or breadcrumb tab here and we'll circle back to it later. I don't, really don't want to spoil these breadcrumbs for you because connecting them, like where they, where you first find them and then where they come to like fruition is so fulfilling that I don't want to ruin that for you. So the whole point is for me to point these out to you now so that when we come to them later, you'll be like, aha, that makes sense. We're doing like the rereading part together. Like if you're reading and then we're kind of rereading it together, like doing the connections together. That's the whole point. I'm going to throw a, out a breadcrumb that will make the Throne of Glass readers very intrigued. Um, if you haven't read Throne of Glass, then this quote really won't mean much to you yet, except that it's just an interesting little quote to even bring up. So I'm reading from page eight and onto page nine. I kicked my boots again against the stone doorframe, 
knocking the snow from them. Bits of ice came free from the gray stones of the cottage, revealing the faded ward markings etched around the threshold. My father had once convinced a passing charlatan to trade the engravings against fairy harm in exchange for one of his wood carvings. There was so little that my father was ever able to do for us that I hadn't possessed the heart to tell him that the engravings were useless and undoubtedly fake. Mortals didn't possess magic, didn't possess any of the superior strength and speed of the fairies or high fae. The man, claiming some high fae blood in his ancestry, had just carved the whirls and swirls and runes around the door and windows, muttered a few nonsense words, and ambled on his way. This quote gets so many questions running around in my brain. And yes, when I go deep into SJM, like analytics, questions just start like popping up in my brain and becoming like sentient. And they start running circles around in my brain until I do something with them. Because I am keeping the main episodes universe spoiler free, I'm not going to really get into this one. But for those of you that are interested in universe connections, tab this one accordingly and we will get back to it. Trust me. We get a ton of information about Elaine, Feyre, and Nesta in this chapter. And to really do it justice, they really need their own episode. Um, so I will be dedicating a mini-sode to Elaine and Nesta and their relationship with Feyre. So keep an eye out for that in the near future. Now I want to bring new readers' attention to page 15. And... Rereaders, attention to page 15. It's right before the chapter break. I slung my outer clothes onto the sagging dresser, frowning at the violets and roses I'd painted around the knobs of Elaine's drawer, the crackling flames I'd painted around Nesta, and the night sky, whirls of yellow stars standing in for white around mine. I'd done it to brighten the otherwise dark room. They'd never commented on it. I don't know why I ever expected them to. So what does this mean? Well, you may be thinking, yes, she's finally addressing the obsession that Feyre has with painting. And the answer to that is yes and no. Feyre and her painting will be addressed again in his own episode. I know I keep saying that, but there are so many things that are so critical and need more attention than just an, a mention in these foreshadowing breadcrumb episodes that it really deserves its own episode. So that will be coming. I'm pointing this quote out as a breadcrumb. This breadcrumb is multi-layered. And a layer of this crumb has not been revealed to us yet, which just absolutely blows my mind. This, The first layer of this crumb will be revealed to us in A Court of Mist and Fury, or Akamath. Another layer, you start to actually get hints of it here in this book, which may surprise some of you, including free readers. And the very last layer is still a secret that lives rent-free in Sarah's head. I will point out the bits of this crumb in this book, but because they relate specifically to a character, they will be in that character's mini-sode. Just, it all comes together. Just like Sarah's books all come together, all of these episodes will come together. I'm going to talk briefly about Feyre's nameless mother and the vow that Feyre made with her. It's just straight up bizarre that both of Feyre's parents are nameless. On page 16, we quote, meet Feyre's mother for the first time. My mother, imperious and cold with her children, joyous and dazzling among the peerage who frequented our former estate, doting on my father, the one person whom she truly loved and respected. But she also had truly loved parties, so much so that she didn't have time to do anything with me at all save contemplate how my budding abilities to sketch and paint might secure me a future husband. Had she lived long enough to see our wealth crumble, she would have been shattered by it more so than my father. Perhaps it was a merciful thing that she had died. So that's all we know about the mother. And that's not a breadcrumb, that's not really foreshadowing, but I needed to just read that so we have an understanding of like what Feyre's mother 
was, like who she was as a person. And remember, this is through Feyre's gaze. So that's all we know, that's all Feyre knows about her from growing up. So you may be wondering, if Feyre's mother is dead, why are we even talking about her? Like, why are we bringing her up? Well, even in death, Feyre's mother has a hold on her through the vow that she made while her mother was on her deathbed. And that vow is later on page 16. It says, stay together and look after them. That's it. But Feyre says, I'd agreed, too young to ask why she hadn't begged my elder sisters or my father. I also need to point out a little bit later on this page what Feyre says about vows in the human lands. Feyre goes on to say, in our world where we'd forgotten names of our gods, a promise was law, a promise was currency, a promise was our bond. I'm gonna jump a little bit ahead of myself here and mention fairy bargains. That's it. That's that's all I wanted all I want to say is just drop that little hint there after reading about Feyre's vow. So since we don't know anything about them yet in this book, um, I'm not going to say anything more. But I just want you to keep that comparison in mind as we continue through this book and through the series. Just have that comparison of Feyre's vow to a fairy bargain like in your head as we continue reading. Our next breadcrumb is on page 19 in the middle of the page. It reads, what do you know, Nesta breathed. You're just a half-wild beast with the nerve to bark orders at all hours of the day and night. Keep it up and someday, someday, Farah, you'll have no one left to remember you or to care that you ever existed. She stormed off, Elaine darting after her, cooing her sympathy. They slammed the door to the bedroom hard enough to rattle the dishes. First, um, why I bring this breadcrumb up is... Pay attention to who else calls Feyre a wild beast or specifically names her an animal's name that is also a wild beast throughout the rest of the book. It's fun when you read them later because you're going to think back to this moment and it's going to kind of be like a full circle. I think this moment is when a lot of readers, myself included, really start to dislike Nesta because of how cruel she is to Feyre. We have to remember that Feyre is her youngest sister and Nesta's the eldest and this is how we see her being treated. This isn't all the time, but this is just what Feyre is showing us and I think this is why a lot of readers really dislike Nesta. I wanted to read my first quote that I highlighted in tabbed pink. Um, so my pink highlight and tab means these are just moments that I really like that like stand out to me. So I'm just going to read that for you. It's on the bottom of 19 and it continues on to 20. We need hope as much as we need bread and meat, he interrupted, his eyes clear for a rare moment. We need hope or else we cannot endure. So let her keep this hope, Feyre. Let her imagine a better life, a better world. I think it's so powerful that this quote actually comes from Feyre's dad since he's such a small and insignificant character at this point that he is the one that's trying to give Feyre hope. That he's the one that's trying to help Feyre give his sister's hope. I mean, her sister's hope. I think it's just important that he is the character that's saying it. In chapter 3, our first breadcrumb is on page 22. May the immortal light shine upon thee, sisters, said the pale-robed young woman directly in our path. Nesta and Elaine clicked their tongues. I stifled a groan. Perfect. Exactly what I needed, to have the children of the blessed in our town on market day, distracting and riling everyone. The village elders usually allowed them to stay for only a few hours, but the sheer presence of the fanatic fools who still worship the high fae made people edgy. Made me edgy. Long ago, the High Fae had been our overlords, not gods, and they certainly hadn't been kind. Now, to follow up with that, I want to read another quote on page 23 because they really do go hand in hand. But the young woman took a breath, her face becoming serene, and said, I lived in such ignorance too, until I heard the word of the blessed. I grew up in a village so similar to this, 
so bleak and grim but not one month ago a friend of my cousin went to the border as our offering to perithian and she has not been sent back now she dwells in riches and comfort as the high-faced bride and so might you if you were to take a moment to these two are connected um they're both about the children of the blessed like who they are and what they are this breadcrumb gets revealed later in the book i am actually currently finishing up my reread of agatar as i'm recording this and i just read the reveal for this breadcrumb and i seriously forgot about it in my previous rereads it really makes you think when you get that reveal connected to this breadcrumb and i can't wait for us to get to it in later episodes and talk about it a little bit more so just kind of like keep this again like keep this tabbed keep this bookmarked because we're gonna get back to it and then a somewhat funny foreshadowing breadcrumb is on page 23 earlier than the quote that i just read two plump and pretty farmer's wives strolled past on their way to the market arm in arm as they neared the accolades their faces twisted with identical expressions of disgust fairy loving whore one of them hurled at the young woman I couldn't disagree. So in the margins next to this quote, all I wrote is LOL. I mean, it's just really funny later on. And that's that's really all that there is to say about this quote at the moment. But it will be funny later. So our next little breadcrumb or bit of foreshadowing is on page 29. My stomach turned. Behind us, my sisters seemed so fragile. Their pale skin so infinitely delicate and shreddable. Against something like the Martax. We never stand a chance. We see the reveal for this later in another book, so not in Akatar, but in a subsequent book. It's just, again, something to mark and to come back to later. On the same page, this one is a little bit trickier because it could potentially be nothing. I'm relying on the knowledge that I have of certain terms, words, and colors that Sarah likes to use when referring to, uh, well, let's call them the evil forces in her novels. I'm reading from the bottom of page 29. The woman pulled back her sleeve of her heavy jacket, revealing a tanned, muscled forearm flecked with gruesome, twisted scars. The arc of them, similar to, didn't have the brute force or size of a martax, she said, but its bite was full of poison. Two months, that's how long I was down. Four months until I had the strength to walk again. She pulled up the leg of her trousers. Beautiful, I thought, even as the horror of it writhed in my gut. Against her tanned skin, the veins were black. Solid black, spiderwebbed, and creeping like frost. Healer said there was nothing to be done for it. That I'm lucky to be walking with the poison still in my legs. Maybe you'll kill me one day. Maybe you'll cripple me. But at least I'll go knowing I killed it first. I hate saying for those of you that know, no. But for those of you that know... No, like what I'm referring to, like why this is a universe spoiler or like a universe connection point, potentially. The point, like the part of that that stood out to me is the color black. As we continue to read these books, you'll kind of figure out why that this was such a big like standout word for me. Again, I really don't want to take away from the surprise, so I'm not going to say much. It's funny because as I'm doing this podcast, I kind of feel like Sarah because I'm giving you hints and I'm not really telling you the why until it comes back up later. Again, I promise this will all make sense in the end. This just gives me hope that we may see this mercenary later. Chapter four is a fun one because we finally get to see a fairy. And while yes, we did see a fairy in chapter one, but at that time, we didn't know it was a fairy. Every single time I reread Akatar, I'm just floored by the description of Tamlin's beast form. And while this quote is not a breadcrumb or foreshadowing, I would like to read it with you just because. 
The beast had to be as large as a horse, and while his body was somewhat feline, his head was distinctly wolfish. I didn't know what to make of the curled, elk-like horns that protruded from his head, but lion or hound or elk, there was no doubting the damage his black, dagger-like claws and yellow fangs could inflict. Now, let that picture of Tamlin's beast form just kind of sink into your mind for a second. Picture his beast form and how terrifying and large it is. Now, I invite you to flip back to page 4, and I'm going to read the wolf's description from chapter 1. He was enormous, the size of a pony, and though I'd been warned about their presence, my mouth turned bone dry. But worse than his size was his unnatural stealth. Even as he inched closer to the brush, he remained unheard, unspotted by the doe. No animal that massive could be so quiet. Now that we know what Tamlin looks like, we are automatically like, oh shit, that wolf was a fairy. So this is just our first breadcrumb connection. It's like an I spy book, but we really don't know what we're looking for until we've already found it. There's a small little breadcrumb on page 35. My voice was surprisingly even as I challenged, killed who? He growled, low and vicious. The wolf, he said, and my heart stumbled a beat. The roar was gone, but the wrath lingered, perhaps even traced with sorrow. Elaine's wail reached a high-pitched shriek. I kept my chin up. A wolf? A wolf with a gray coat, he snarled in response. Would he know if I lied? Fairies couldn't lie. All mortals knew that. But could they smell the lies on human tongues? I just love all the little wives tales throughout this book. Like, you can imagine this little bit of information being shared from, like, mother to children over generations. It's that thought that makes this breadcrumb so fulfilling later on when we find out the reveal or the connection. I'm going to be using those words, like, interchangeably like the reveal meaning like the connection point for the breadcrumb or i'll just say connection but both of them mean the same thing a breadcrumb that connects to the end of this book is on page 36 it reads better to die with my chin held high than groveling like a cowering worm this one is very funny to me on my reread every single time and because i'm pointing this out to you now you will actually be able to see the humor in it later when this comes to fruition um next to it in my margins i just have written that won't age well. So it's going to be funny and I'll point it out to you again later when we get there. Remember or earlier in this episode when I asked you to pay attention to who calls Feyre a wild beast or some type of animal that is a wild beast? Well, here is the first connection. This is on page 37. Do it outside, I whispered, my voice trembling. Not here. Not where my family would have to wash away my blood and gore, even if he let them live. The fairy huffed a vicious laugh, willing to accept your fate so easily. When I just stared at him, he said, For having the nerve to request where I slaughter you, I'll let you in on a secret, human. Perithian must claim your life in some way, for the life you took from it. So as a representative of the immortal realm, I can either gut you like swine, or you can cross the wall and live out the remainder of your days in Perithian. I blinked. What? He said slowly, as if I were indeed a, as stupid as a swine. Tamlin's not straight up calling Feyre a wild beast, but he is calling her a swine, which can be categorized as a wild beast. So that's just an interesting little tidbit that connects it. What's even better about this is this is not the last time that another character will refer to Feyre as some kind of animal. This next breadcrumb I really like because it's so small, but it will mean so much later, even if Later, it's tweaked a little bit different when we come back across it. I'm reading this from page 39. As long as the fairies couldn't find me again, they couldn't hold me to the treaty. 
even if it made me a cursed oath breaker. That's it. Just remember that, that she's calling herself a cursed oath breaker. We will come back to this. <laughs> Again, at the end of this chapter, we have Papa Archeron coming in hot with another banger of a quote to end chapter four. No breadcrumbs, but like kind of maybe. I just really love it because Farah will kind of refer back to this later on in the book. It's on page 41, end of chapter 4. You were always too good for here, Farah. Too good for us, too good for everyone. He squeezed my hands. If you ever escape, ever convince them that you've paid the debt, don't return. I hadn't expected a heart-wrenching goodbye, but I hadn't imagined this either. Don't ever come back, my father said, releasing my hands to shake me by the shoulders. Farah, he stumbled over my name, his throat bobbing. You go somewhere new. You make a name for yourself. So again, we see Papa Archeron kind of giving this advice or wisdom to Feyre, and she doesn't want to take it. So the first time, she didn't want to believe in hope, and now she's completely shocked that her father, who never speaks up, never does anything, is telling her not to come back. When she is clearly the be the breadwinner, like the person who is keeping their family alive, he is telling her do not come back. With that, we're going to bring in chapter 5, and I have a breadcrumb that is 100% a universe breadcrumb, but I can't help but bring it up. It's really small and it might not mean anything at all, but there are some trigger words in here that start ringing some bells in, some, in people's heads that have read Crescent City. We'd likely go to whatever rift in the wall he'd used to get here to steal me. And once we went through the invisible wall, once we were in Perithian, there was no way for my family to ever find me. So if you know what words in there are the trigger words, then you know. I don't know if this is connected to anything and anyway but because it has some of those trigger words in there that's why i marked it what's interesting about this is while i'm doing this podcast and finding these breadcrumbs and the foreshadowing and the things that connect there's things that i don't have the answers to but i know they may be important so that's why i'm pointing them out if it comes down to it and they're not important well then i was just being crazy and that's fine but if on the slim chance that they do mean something later i can say aha i found it already so, I mean, eh, whatever, it's fun. You know what I mean? So a little bit later in that, on that same page, there's another breadcrumb. It says, my throat went dry. I killed a fairy. I couldn't bring myself to feel badly about it. Not with my family left behind me to surely starve. Not when it meant one less wicked, awful creature in the world. So this, again, is a breadcrumb that's related to when Pharaoh was killing the wolf that she thought was a fairy but maybe wasn't a fairy but now we know is a fairy and she did it with like malice she was like good i'm glad this fairy is dead this is like the same thing so this one is connected to that one and these two breadcrumbs link up and we'll get a connection later so i only have a few final thoughts left for this chunk of chapters my next one is actually a question um, but first, let me read you the passage that sparks this question in me, and it's actually on page 46, the last page of chapter 5. I didn't have a chance to struggle, to fight back, when a charged metallic tang stung my nose. Exhaustion slammed down upon me, and blackness swallowed me whole. I awoke with a jolt atop the horse, secured by invisible bonds. The sun was already high. Magic. That's what the tang had been. What was keeping my limbs tucked in tight, preventing me from go from going for my knife? So Feyre is human. As far as we know, 100% human. Question mark, potentially. Yet, she can sense magic. Why? That is my question. And this question is not answered in this book. 
and I haven't found an answer to it yet, but it's a question that I will come back later to in a mini episode. Immediately after this bit about magic, we get this fun little quote that is very much related and it fuels my question even further. I recognize the power deep in my bones from some collective mortal memory and terror. How long had it kept me unconscious? How long had he kept me unconscious rather than have to speak to me? So the part in this quote that actually is the part that I want to talk about the most is that she recognized this magic, this power in her own bones. So I am not taking questions about this line until my theory episode. Tab it, come back, we'll talk about it later because boy do I have a theory about this one. Finally, a heartbreaking breadcrumb to wrap up this episode. It's on the same page. Gritting my teeth, I might have demanded answers from him. Might have shouted to where he still lumbered ahead, heedless of me. But then, chirping birds flitted past me and a mild breeze kissed my face. I spied a hedge border metal gate of my prison or my salvation. I couldn't decide which. This breadcrumb kind of hits home in book two, like in A Court of Mist and Fury. And this question of whether... Tamlin in the spring court is her prison or her salvation is something that I think Vera struggles with throughout A Court of Thorns and Roses and will be more apparent in the next book. So just kind of keep that question that she asked that question on her own and she was asking that question to herself and we'll see it later. If this episode seemed a little bit confusing, then I succeeded in my mission. If I were to just hand out all the meanings behind these breadcrumbs, then I would take away the wonderful feeling later when all of the pieces finally came together. The next analysis episode, we will be covering chapters 6 through 10, so if you want to get reading on those, that way you'll know exactly what we're talking about when we do the next episode. If you want to stay up to date on all Dear Sarah news, please follow us on Instagram at Dear Sarah Bookcast. If you have a question or a theory that you would like me to discuss on a future episode, please email me at DearSarahBookcast at gmail.com or slide into my DMs on Instagram. If you are looking for exclusive content, including my annotations from my book, you can become a Patreon which directly supports me and the podcast. You can find my book reviews and my book thoughts at Moonlight Books Co. on Instagram and TikTok. Thanks for listening and happy reading.